0: Hello, welcome to the Science for Policy podcast. My name is Toby, and today I'm joined by Professor George Griffin. Professor Griffin is a trained physician and a past Harkness fellow at Harvard University Medical School, and he's become one of Europe's leading experts on both infectious diseases, where his research has made major contributions to the understanding of HIV, among others, and on public health, for which work he was awarded the British honor of CBE in 2018. Professor Griffin now sits on the board of Public Health England. He was formerly part of the high-profile SAGE Science Advisory Committee in the UK and remains Emeritus Professor of Infectious Diseases and Medicine at St George's Medical School in London, where he originally founded the Vaccine Research Centre. And last but certainly not least, he was elected President of the Federation of European Academies of Medicine, which gives him a continuing role also in in shaping science policy at European level, despite being a post-Brexit Brit. So, George, hello. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Hello, Toby. Thank you for that introduction.
0: It's a pleasure, of course. So I noticed from reading your biography that we have another thing in common, um, apart from both being unwilling victims of Brexit, which is that we both have PhDs from the University of Hull in the north of England. What's even stranger, maybe, is that... uh, Although I'm the last person you want sitting next to you on the train if you have a heart attack, my PhD is from a medical school and yours
1: is not. No, my PhD actually was on how muscles grow, and that formed my interest uh, of one of the research topics that I've looked at, which is the effect of infection on human metabolism. And, And really you could say that my research looks at the host response to infection and vaccines, both immunologically and metabolically. So I've always tried to keep very good clinical medicine and very high level basic biomedical research going together in parallel.
0: Yeah. And now in recent years, adding to that with your expertise in advising policymakers um, in Europe as well as the UK on public health issues and also on vaccination policy, which is what we plan to discuss today.
1: Yes. Oh, very much.
0: So there's obviously a very clear hook, as it were, to hang this discussion on, um, given that many countries, or at least a number of countries, we might come to that, um, are engaged right now in in this mass vaccination programme, one of the biggest we've ever known in the world. Um, But actually, I think mostly because of that, I feel like I've been exposed to more nuggets of information about the basic science of how vaccination works over the last 12 months than ever before. And I have to say, it's fascinating, but I don't quite have a coherent picture in my mind yet. And maybe some of our listeners might be in the same situation. Many of them have scientific backgrounds, but they're certainly not all biomedical. So I wonder if I could invite you, George, to kick off by giving us a whirlwind tour of what vaccination actually is and and how it works.
1: Well, Uh, To start off, strategically, vaccination is one of the important therapies in in the world. Uh, Vaccination has been absolutely fantastically important, particularly in getting rid of childhood diseases, uh, of eradicating some infections, for example, uh, smallpox. The idea behind vaccination is actually very simple, that you give to an individual, classically by injection, but also you can give it by mouth or up the nose. You give uh, what is a protein uh, or part of a bacterial or a viral pathogen, and the body takes that up, and because it's a foreign protein uh, or a whole uh, organism, the body says, hey, I've got to form an immune response to this, and the immune system then comes in, and we know now a lot about how the immune system works. But the really important thing is there's an acute phase to the response, but then there's immune memory. So for years afterwards, we have cells in our body which can react to those proteins if we encounter them again. So vaccination protects acutely uh, after, say, two or three weeks. There's memory and you can boost that uh, by giving more injections uh, or you can, like some vaccines for yellow fever, for example, one vaccination is for life. So it's, it's probably the most important thing in terms of infection, uh, in addition to antibiotics, of course, that have happened in medicine. And we're now getting very, very sophisticated and clever in understanding how the immune system works and how to give vaccines which are strong and powerful. And when we talk about COVID, uh, I can mention the types of uh, vaccines that are now being used, which are very, very new and very novel.
0: All right, well, let's do that now while we're talking about the science. Mm. My understanding is that some of the COVID vaccines have been touted as quite revolutionary in the way they work. I think I heard that about the Pfizer vaccine. But are they still based on the same fundamental mechanics of immunisation that you've just described?
1: Well, two of them, uh, for example, the Pfizer vaccine is what's called messenger RNA. And messenger RNA vaccines have been tried before, particularly in the field of cancer, and they've not been terribly effective. And so this was a real breakthrough uh, to be able to give messenger RNA, which, as you know, codes for protein, Uh, to an individual by injection in muscle. And then uh, the body sees this messenger RNA, the muscle sees it, and protein is produced. And the immune system then recognizes that protein as being uh, abnormal for the body and mounts the immune response that I was talking to you about. Now, that's a very novel uh, vaccine, and it works extremely well for covid there are other vaccines for COVID, which are be the whole virus, which have been uh, inactivated. Uh, there are vaccines where you've put the spike protein, which is the important protein that binds the virus to the, uh, to the cells, where the spike protein is inserted into a carrier-disabled uh, virus. Uh, and this is the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine, where uh, a chimpanzee adenovirus has been used as the vector. So we are talking a bit of Star Wars now for COVID vaccines. It, it's it's really very very exciting in the uh, in the field, and we know of course these vaccines are very potent uh, at preventing uh, infection, and it, now we know that they're very effective at preventing transmission. So we are entering a new age in vaccinology.
0: Okay, that's interesting. So let me ask you more about that then. I I hadn't really understood. Firstly, why the Pfizer vaccine was so groundbreaking. Um, So thanks for making that clear. Mm. But another thing that seems to me to be novel in the COVID story is the speed of the whole thing. It was really a a race and we had like multiple winners within just a few short months, just less than a year. So how come it all happened so fast? Or maybe to ask another way, how come it normally happens so slowly since we were assured that corners weren't cut this time? What was different?
1: That's a very good question. Well, the first thing to say is the urgency of getting a vaccine was crucial. At the moment, uh, whilst there are some drugs, uh, both small molecules uh, like dexamethasone that you've heard of and uh, larger molecules, uh, antibodies, which can ameliorate the infection but they can't definitively treat it. Like say an antibiotic can treat a bacterial infection, but they're very, very useful and important. So the idea was there has to be a vaccine. We were in a pandemic situation. Uh, The infection was spreading very rapidly throughout the world. And we know now uh, virtually all countries have been infected. So there was urgency. As the principal thing to do this, how did it happen so quickly? Well, it happened so quickly because there were very good breakthroughs, and the messenger RNA that I've mentioned to you is 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 just one of those. Um, the others have been things like the aging immune system, which everybody talks about. How can you make Older people have a good immune response because there's some evidence that the older immune system doesn't work quite as well. And there are now adjuvants, as they're called, that you add to the vaccine, which really potentiate the immune response in the older population. Now, vaccinology is now a discipline on its own in clinical medicine, and that involves the immune response. It involves the manufacturing and all of these things came together to form this horrible word vaccinology, uh, but it was there and ready. The race was then on. And by the race, I mean we, we know there are about 170 vaccines being explored at the moment for COVID. So that this this mix of big pharma uh, having the ability to do it, science having advanced and vaccinology being there, and the world need.
0: So then another question springs to mind. Does this mean we can do it again in the future? So like COVID was a very urgent need, like you said, but then there are other diseases around that have killed and still kill many more people than COVID realistically ever will. Oh, yes. So for instance, HIV that you've worked on, um, HIV became endemic in large parts of the population. It took forever to develop a vaccine. So will that be different in future? Do we now have the technology or even just like the kind of proof of concept from COVID that we can do it faster? So that's the new normal. Or is there something about the disease? Will we still be stuck with slower timeframes for other vaccines?
1: Mm. Now, your question, first of all, which I, I haven't answered yet, why is it so slow often? It can be five, seven years to develop a, a vaccine or to develop a new drug. The answer to that is there's often not the pressing need and the regulation is very, very high to make sure that these are safe, there are no side effects and, uh, and they have to be checked. There are regulatory bodies in all of the countries, for example, the uh, NHRA in the UK. Now, when the COVID vaccines came through, These regulatory authorities like the MHRA and the uh, FDA in in the United States, they were given a remit, get going on this. So there was urgency and there was a very quick response by Big Pharma and by biotech and then by the regulatory authorities. So uh, it proves that you can develop a vaccine in one year with all of the safety and all of the efficacy and the clinical trials, which is a remarkable feat when you think about it, quite remarkable.
0: Yeah, it really is. I mean, but that's why I'm asking, does it give hope for the future? I mean, not just for the next pandemic, but for the next disease where we might decide to light that kind of political fire under the whole process and try and accelerate things. Oh,
1: yeah, yeah. Well, there was a a predecessor of the COVID vaccine, and that is for Ebola. Now, Ebola is a very serious viral infection, of course, one of a group called viral hemorrhagic fevers, which is pretty well endemic in, in some parts of Africa. The uh, DRC, Congo, is the principal place, as you know. And then there was the outbreak uh, a couple of years ago. And uh, a vaccine for that virus was produced very quickly, and it works very well. And it was the antecedent, actually, using this viral vector that I mentioned, uh, like for the uh, Oxford uh, AstraZeneca vaccine. So it can be done. It can be done.
0: Okay. One last question about the science then, before we go on to talk about the policy and the politics. Um, How well understood is the vaccine? In fact, how well understood is COVID itself? Ah. Because one thing that strikes me about the quote-unquote normal rate of developing a vaccine for for a well-established disease is that Um, while you're spending your eight years or whatever bringing the vaccine to a place where it can be approved and used, you also have that time to gather lots of information about the disease itself, to do the basic research, to see long-term effects on patients and so on. Mm. So even if the trials and approval process for, for the COVID vaccine has been done just as thoroughly in eight months as it would normally have been done in eight years, with the best will in the world, not only can we not really know the long-term effects of the vaccines, could we only started sticking them in human arms like six months ago, but also we can't even know the long-term effects of the virus. Uh, might there still be surprises around the corner? Do we have significant knowledge still to get? Or have we also somehow accelerated our knowledge gathering to match?
1: Oh, we've got loads more knowledge to get. And there are still some very, very fundamental questions about this infection. A new disease that was a respiratory tract disease uh, and very serious, causing uh, respiratory failure, ventilation and death. And my ear, nose and throat surgeons, for example, who have been putting tracheostomies into patients who needed uh, ventilatory support, say when they look down in in the trachea, there is just a whole load of gunk. They, they, They call it like anchovy sauce. It's pink and red, and, and it is just obstructing the airways. But that's severe infection. The other end of the spectrum, which we don't yet understand, is children. Young children can have the virus in their respiratory tract, but not get disease. And in some way, probably the innate immune system, uh, which is different from the contrived one that you contrive with a vaccine, is so powerful that it might be able to stop this. My own son got COVID recently. His wife got it as well. They were very ill. His two children at home aged uh, 12 and 8 didn't get a whisper of any form of respiratory tract infection, even though they they were very close. Quite remarkable. And the paediatricians are getting very interested in this now.
0: I bet they are, yeah. And it seems like as a world, we've dodged a bullet there, right? Because for all the terrible effects of the pandemic on our society, uh, you can still kind of speculate about a counterfactual. What if it had been just the same, but it had gone for the children?
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: What a, what a different kind of world we'd live in right now if that had happened.
1: Yeah. So there are lots of things we don't know about the disease. What we do know now is that If you suppress the human inflammatory response to the infection, you can do great things. And the way viruses cause disease is not the virus itself. It's the immune system that our bodies make, which creates the mayhem uh, and causes uh, pneumonia and the respiratory failure. The steroids, dexamethasone is the big one, of course, that's being used, suppress uh, that uh, reaction by suppressing these chemicals that the body's releasing called cytokines.
0: Okay, good. So let's talk a bit, if we can, about the policy implications, because there are
1: many. It, very many. Yeah.
0: So so we're now facing a situation where many countries around the world, including your own, are undertaking these major vaccination programs to try and protect people and societies against, against COVID-19. And this is one of those projects right at the interface between science and public policy. And, and the more you think about it, the more you start to realize what a huge, complicated issue it is. Mm-hmm. So, well, maybe I'll ask the question very broadly at the start, and then we can kind of focus it down as we go along if we need to. Yes. If you were advising a government on how to undertake a big vaccination program, I mean, any, not just necessarily COVID, what are the big issues you'd advise them to think about? Well, the first
1: One and the strategic one is be prepared. Pandemic preparedness has not been absolutely clear. We we can recognize a disease, but uh, are we ready for it? You've got to have the ability to respond very quickly. Uh, You've got to have the workforce uh, that can handle Uh, these pandemics. And as you know, the health service in all of the European countries has been stretched to the absolute limit, to the extent that other important services of cancer screening, cancer prevention, uh, and so on, uh, have had to uh, be restricted. So in terms of the response, uh, a word you used, uh, complexity is absolutely correct it is highly highly complex and even when you have a vaccine it's highly complex and you have to then think about policy of how you can do the very very best to produce a vaccine to transport a vaccine to where it's going to be used to store the vaccine and then to administer the vaccine and then the major policy discussion, which is very, very interesting in all countries, is who gets the first vaccine. Is it healthcare workers? Is it nursing homes with very old people who we know are highly susceptible? And that's been one of the things that we've had to address. One of my friends uh, from Harvard days in the States is, is now very senior in uh, drug development in D.C., and when I told him that uh, health care workers should be a big priority, uh, he said, we could never do that easily because that would look like special pleading. Huh. And yeah. I, I was amazed. I That's was amazed. so
0: interesting. I mean, so in the US, you've got a, a, a private health care system, right? In Britain, it's public, as in yes. most of the world. And I think... British people in particular have a very special relationship with their health service, it's fair to say. You wouldn't hear that kind of reaction exactly, in the UK, I think.
1: Exactly right. And, you know, we, we know that we are short of nurses and we don't produce enough doctors in the UK. Very, very interestingly, in terms of, of a major policy uh, change for the, uh, well, for the next year, the number of students applying to do nursing and to do medicine has gone through the ceiling. Oh good, I'm pleased to hear that. Which is really good. Now the question in terms of policy though, uh, Toby, is uh, it costs a third of a million pounds to produce a, a medical graduate. At the moment, we, we've gone from 9,000 to 12,000 medical students. Uh, how do we support that? And when they graduate, should they be kept in the UK because it's, it's well, I hate the word subsidised, but it's helped the finance of the uh, education. Uh, some of them want to go off to Australia and New Zealand uh, more or less after they've uh, registered. And this is a big thing we're going to have to think about. So the workforce is very important.
0: Clearly. So you talked about the prioritisation of vaccine recipients, and that's obviously under major public scrutiny. Oh, great. How is this stuff decided? What kind of scientific advice goes into it? I don't just mean in the UK, but in general.
1: Well, the final decision, of course, is from the government and the Minister of Health, acting on advice. And it's very important to get numbers. What is the incidence of the disease? What is the prevalence uh, of patients in hospitals? Uh, you know, and some patients, as you know, are ventilated for weeks if not months and survive uh, and they are occupying uh, uh, intensive care space uh, for a long long time so you, you need to have all of those numbers so you can plan and I'm sure you've seen the graphs which show the first peak of infection and then a little peak and now the big big peak that we've had and using those numbers we can see in the UK that the incidence of PCR positivity has dropped by about 23% a week. And even so, we still have about 10,000 new cases, uh, 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 which is uh, a lot of cases. So the rate of fall is important, but the absolute number is very important to know as well in terms of making policy.
0: In... Making those decisions. So, as you say, like it's a political call at the end of the day, but informed by the science. That's the theory. But in a way, it's it's a you sometimes get a bit of a chicken and egg situation because there are different possible objectives you might have. It's not just a medical or, or epidemiological issue. You might, for instance, want to reopen society as soon as possible, or you might want to achieve herd immunity, or you might want to reduce pressure on the health service. Um, so these are things where the science has a lot to say, but it doesn't give us the answer to what, what we should be trying to do. Like Even if we say our aim is very directly to save lives, um, as Christiane Volpen pointed out on this podcast not too long ago, even that's not cut and dried. Do you want to save the most individual lives or the most life years? Do you want to save lives all over the world equally? Do you try just as hard to save uh, a life at high risk as one at low risk? Oh, yeah. And also, what do you mean by risk? Like, is it risk of infection or, or death or risk of a certain severity of complication or or what? And so on. How do these decisions get tackled?
1: Well, some of them are very complex. If you compare, say, an 85-year-old severely demented person in a nursing home and compare that person with a 25-year-old uh, engineer or somebody uh you know who has years ahead of them and will make a contribution to the to the country you then start to have it have to think you know who whose life are you really really going to save do you ration the treatment and tier one in the uk was in fact the uh older people in nursing homes
0: yeah tier one is the top priority right
1: that's right uh, and and You have to think as well of getting to a state, and you mentioned herd immunity. There's one group, I believe it's at Stanford in the States, which says, look, uh, the death rate from COVID depends where you are, of course, but it could be two to five percent, say. The other people get better, and we can talk about long COVID as well, perhaps in a moment, but the other people will get better. If you just let this infection go through society, uh, you will get herd immunity eventually. Now, it's a bit of a a Russian roulette. You know, you have young people of 25, 35 who are very fit, who die. You have children who don't get infected. You have older people uh, who survive with treatment. And again, it's this understanding uh, the pathophysiology of the disease. And then there are choices to be made. They are difficult at the clinical level, let alone at the, at the governmental level.
0: Mm-hmm. OK, uh, what else?
1: Uh, well, the other thing that you, you, I think you, you would be getting on to, but you didn't mention, is the immense uh, financial aspects of pandemic at all levels, from the uh, the macro level uh, of a country through to individuals who lose jobs or who get a small amount of money from the government to keep them going. Hospitality, restaurants and so on are, are severely threatened, absolutely severely threatened. And there's a group now in, in the UK of politicians who have written to the prime minister just recently 64 i believe to say oi let's get things moving the rate of infections coming down the weather's going to get better soon in spring and summer surely we can start to unlock things it's a very delicate decision as to what to do and when to do it because we we don't want to stop the lockdown and end up with another peak and uh, our prime minister in the uk has said the The challenge that he's put forward is this time, I'm going to make a roadmap and it's irreversible. Now, that is a very tough call. And what happens in a month's time if we have another peak?
0: Yeah, well, if irreversible means unresponsive to changing reality.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. So perhaps it was a a little bit uh, brisk to say, I'm going to make an irreversible plan. Uh, A better way is to say, I'm going to make a plan, but I'm going to be aware all the time things change. And that's exactly what's been happening with this infection. But now we have the vaccines coming in. Interestingly, you you were talking about complexity, Toby, and, and how that impinges on policy. at The Public Health England board this week we had a very interesting discussion about who is responsible for what. Now, Big Pharma, of course, is responsible for the vaccinology and the manufacture. But to get from a solution in a glass vial to a patient, a volunteer, or somebody who is going to be vaccinated, there are many steps involved. And one of the things we talked about was the distribution. You have a vaccine. Pfizer vaccine has to be kept at minus 70 degrees centigrade. That has to be kept intact at minus 70. Going from the uh, point of manufacture, we get it from uh, Belgium uh, and it's flown uh, or has been flown by the Royal Air Force. It then has to be distributed through the whole of the United Kingdom. I mean, what a logistical task that is. And at the end of the day, when you're faced with a patient and and the syringe, you have to think, gosh, I hope this has been at minus 70 and it's just been frozen and it's all intact. And it is. And that's a remarkable achievement. So it's highly complex and policy has to think about those complex stages, make sure that none of them break down.
0: Right. And I guess there's the scientific input at every level, not just in the, the vaccine, but right. also in the yep. logistical processes and understanding public behavior, oh. how people are going to respond to the rollout and, and so on.
1: Public behavior. <laughs> how long have you got, Toby? Be... <laughs> well, yeah.
0: yeah. I, mean, I, I mean, I think this is important and I'm not in a hurry if you're not. So uh, let's explore it a bit. To take one obvious big issue here... Do we have a good scientific understanding of the drivers of vaccine hesitancy? I suspect that might be what you're, you're tilting towards anyway.
1: Well, before we talk about hesitancy, hesitancy is a normal response to something that you're worried about. And a mother subjecting her child to a vaccination. I think it's absolutely normal to be hesitant and get information. It's not the hesitancy that's the problem. It's the refusal that's the problem. And the word hesitancy is now the common word that's used. And of course, I understand exactly why that is. But it's the refusal and saying, I am not going to have the vaccine. No, it's too dangerous or whatever. So there's a lot of fallacy around about the risks of vaccination. And this goes, of course, to uh, the MMR, the measles, mumps and rubella story, uh, and the early idea that this was linked to autism, which is now totally disproven. But boy, that hurt vaccination Well, a great deal.
0: Yeah. So was that the start of it? I mean, everyone talks about the MMR uh, example, holds it up as like the clearest example of the fallacy. I, I remember it all happening years ago. Yeah. But was that really the start of, of the modern anti-vax movement? Or did it just give it a shot in the arm? (laughs) I
1: think it was, well, I think there was hesitancy before, as I've described. But it was never to the extent uh, as happened after the MMR story. And it's still rampant. And, uh, you know, we have epidemics of measles in the UK because MMR was not being used. And the person who started that off with autism uh, was actually struck off the GMC, the General Medical Council Register, uh, and went to the States where he is being funded with private funding uh, in excelsis deo by the anti-vaxxers. And the, the other thing about vaccine refusal, which is very, very interesting, is uh, I'm sure you've seen the, the BAME incidents of, uh, of serious uh, COVID disease, and it turns out that if you look at, at white Caucasians and BAME people accepting vaccination, uh, the, the, the BAME population is considerably less for reasons that are being investigated than the white Caucasian population. And that's a great shame because we know they are uh, that population appears to be at higher risk. And again, that's being uh, investigated at, at the moment.
0: Yeah, so you've got the the double whammy of higher risk of severe consequences and lower take-up of vaccination.
1: Exactly. Uh, And this is a a real worry to me, actually. And again, it it highlights what you said again at the beginning, high complexity, uh, many, many factors to think about. And it's not just as simple as saying, we've got a vaccine, let's use it, everybody has it. Far from it. It is much more complex than that.
0: Do you think there's a role for scientists in, in directly persuading people uh, that vaccines are safe?
1: Oh, very much. Very much. But it must be in, a I was going to say, a non-scientific way. Of course, it has to use evidence, uh, but it has to be aimed in a way that everybody can understand. And that there's absolutely no doubt that that vaccine technology and the administration of vaccines now is, is the answer at the moment. It's, it's apart from the the rescue uh, drugs that we've got, uh, which we don't really want to be in a position of using because you've got the infection, then uh, prevention is, is the big, big thing.
0: Yeah. So I guess you're always going to have a certain amount of vaccine refusal. Is there a, a level we can ignore, epidemiologically speaking, and still get away with it? Oh. I've heard different figures yeah. battered around saying we... Don't approach herd immunity till we have sixty percent or seventy or eighty or ninety uh, immunized. What's the science behind that? Do we know how many refuse next we can accommodate?
1: Uh, well, there is a science behind it uh, and it's herd immunity as you were mentioning before. It's very likely that herd immunity is different for different infections. So for example, measles which is the classic one that's talked about in terms of herd immunity. You need a herd immunity of 85 to 90% uh, in order to say that there is the beginning of safety.
0: Why? What is it about measles that means it has to be so high?
1: It is highly infectious. It's spread by the uh, respiratory route spread by touching and and uh, through mucosal surfaces. It is very very infectious, and we become complacent when there is a measles epidemic and people see what it's like. Uh, they rush to get vaccinated. Uh, I remember when I was uh, uh, on the a uh, training on the infectious disease unit at St George's, uh, we had several measles cases when the mmr refusal was starting we had some american elective students and they all flocked onto the ward because they'd never seen measles they didn't <laughs> know what it looked like they they were amazed and you know and people become complacent when you have such a successful vaccine as the mmr uh you you forget about the disease so we, in terms of herd immunity for COVID, Toby, which I guess is the root of your question, um, we don't know yet. We don't know. But it's likely to be 80% plus.
0: I see. And even then, we don't expect it to vanish like, uh, I don't know, like like smallpox, I guess. We expect it to be an ongoing thing.
1: Well, that's the current thought. Um, the, the slight hope at the back of my mind is that SARS-1, which was a coronavirus, disappeared. And we don't know where it is. It's gone. Uh, And, you know, we can hope and pray, if that's the right word, that that might happen again. But the current feeling is because of the worldwide prevalence of this infection, that it's likely to end up like influenza and we will need uh, we'll need to watch the genetics of the virus to make sure that we have active vaccination. Uh, We need to watch its periodicity and and so on. So the hope that it will disappear, hope springs eternal, uh, but it's looking a bit uh, grim at the moment, I I must say. And we have to be prepared for that.
0: Yeah, well, I feel like we've all learned the skill of managing our expectations a bit better over the last 12 months or so. so, George, I want to bring us back to the specific details of the the vaccine or vaccines um, and government policy about them, because there's a couple of particular issues I want to get your take on. The first one is this discussion right now about the, the risk of serious consequences, so blood clots among people who've had the vaccine. The mainstream media reporting seems to have gone back and forth on this a bit about whether these reports of rare blood clots are like just what you'd expect anyway among the population, so basically down to chance, or whether they are rare side effects of being vaccinated. And if they're side effects, how concerned we should be. Can you shed some light on the whole situation, like both the science of it and the the policy response?
1: The adverse events that we're talking about, which have been recorded, particularly for the AstraZeneca vaccine, are those of Uh, thrombotic disease and thrombotic disease means there's clotting in the intravascular system of the recipients of the vaccine and that clotting has been of a very serious nature in some people uh, which has resulted in deaths in the UK for example we have 79 such events Uh, at least that was the number Uh, that's been used uh, in the recent um, uh, Medicine and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency talks. The clotting is very unusual in that it's a clotting which is seen when there are very low platelets in the blood. Now platelets are small fragments of cells which are crucial in the clotting process. And when you have too many platelets, you often get clotting. But in this case, the clotting is seen in the presence of very low platelet counts, which is called thrombocytopenia. So that really posed the question, why is this so unusual? And there's one other type of adverse event to a drug, uh, which again is paradoxical. Uh, and that is in the use of uh, an anticoagulant called heparin, which is given to thin the blood, usually. And the mechanism of the heparin induced thrombocytopenia is now quite well understood. And it turns out that the mechanism, which is being postulated to be a side effect of the AstraZeneca vaccine, and now maybe one of the other vaccines that I'll talk about could be very closely related and there are now papers beginning to uh, elucidate that. There were two in the New England Journal of Medicine very recently. So what is now happening is that rather than saying we think that this is just a normal event in normal pathology because this this can occur sporadically, we're now beginning to say there are enough of these events to suggest very strongly that this is a side effect of the vaccine.
0: Right, I think I hadn't fully understood that that was where the evidence was now pointing. So that's helpful, thank you. So, so what do we do about
1: it? So what the uh, MHRA that I mentioned to you in the UK is the uh, Medicine and Healthcare Product Regulatory Agency uh, last weekend had a very, very major meeting where they looked at all of the events within the UK and then looked at the European experience and said this is thrombocytopenic clotting, which is very unusual and could be caused or is very likely to be caused by the vaccine. And because of that, they said the vaccine, in the UK at least, is not advised for people under the age of 30, and that we have enough vaccines in the UK for a choice to be made by the individual getting the vaccine. And that choice principally, of course, is Pfizer, uh, which was one of the first vaccines, which has a a very, very low incidence. I believe only two patients have had this, this effect, which could well be given the millions of doses that have been given just part of the naturally occurring uh, thrombotic episode. And I've seen now that the EMA, the European Medicines Agency, have said that the AstraZeneca vaccine is is safe. The protection that's afforded outweighs the risk of uh, getting serious COVID infection and thrombosis. Uh, I understand that in, I think it's France, Uh, they have said that the AstraZeneca vaccine can be used in recipients over the age of 50. Slightly different from the MHRA, but again putting an age restriction in it. But the evidence seems to be going on to say this is a very unusual form of clotting. Uh, It seems to happen in the younger age group more than the older one, even though there are some Uh, people in the age, uh, in the 50 to 60 age group in the UK who've had this, but it's predominantly young women who seem to be affected mostly. So the current advice is very much, this is a very protective vaccine, but that this side effect is very likely to be related to the uh, vaccination rather than being sporadic. And so you have to have special exemptions for people. So there are some people who we know, for example, have a clotting defect which may predispose to thrombosis. And clearly those people now, the advice is not to give them the uh, AstraZeneca vaccine, but use one of the alternatives. I have just seen reports from the United States that the uh, Johnson & Johnson vaccine has been having similar Uh, adverse events of thrombocytopenic thrombosis. And they have just recorded six uh, uh, vaccinees who've had Johnson & Johnson, who've had thrombotic events, two of which I understand have died, and one is uh, receiving critical care at the moment. So they have temporarily suspended the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Now, that means that these two vaccines, AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson, which are slightly different, but they work on the same principle. They have a an inactivated virus as the vector for the gene, for the spike protein. It turns out that the other vaccines, which don't have viral vectors, which are usually recombinant proteins within... Uh, a lipid droplet or an adjuvant of some sort, do not seem to have the same effect. So the finger is pointing towards a viral vector in some way causing this event, but we don't know how that works yet.
0: Okay, so that's a very clear explanation of the science. Thanks. In terms of the policy response, especially the public communication, it, it seems quite complicated though. I mean, so firstly, the message is, is quite a subtle one. We have a vaccine, or we have two vaccines now, which seemingly do have sometimes deadly side effects, but at the same time, they're broadly safe. And that already might sound paradoxical to the casual listener. And of course, the reality is, well, the benefits outweigh the risks for most people, as long as you don't belong to one of these particular groups. I mean, OK, so the facts are the facts. But when you come to try and communicate it, that's not the kind of message you ideally want to be <laughs> communicating when you're trying to maximise vaccine take-up to end a well worldwide pandemic, especially when there's already a problem with vaccine hesitancy. So then I suppose the question becomes, which option do you choose? Which option do policymakers choose? Do you talk up the safety and the effectiveness to try to promote broad take-up? Or do you talk up the rigour and the way you're tackling the risks to try and maintain trust in your regulatory processes?
1: Well. I think the, the halfway house, as we would say, of saying it appears from the evidence we have that this effect is seen in the younger people and in younger women. And therefore, that's why the MHRA and uh, I believe uh, uh, in the States that they are going to be restricting the use in that age group, which will reduce the incidence There's no doubt that the AstraZeneca vaccine is very powerful in suppressing the effects of the infection, if you're unlucky enough to get it, and indeed is likely to prevent infection. So the the line which has been taken is that the protection that's afforded outweighs the very, very small, and we're talking uh, two or three or maybe four in a million doses of the vaccine and when uh, any age restriction and maybe sex restriction, gender restriction is brought in, that will be reduced even further, even if there is a screening test to be able to identify people who could respond in this way. uh, As far as we can see, this is going to be a very small number and who knows how much the test would cost. And that's why the authorities are saying the benefits uh, outweigh the very, very small risk at the moment. And that, that is the stance which is is being taken.
0: Yeah, point taken.
1: Now, the, the big challenge in terms of the use of the vaccine is that, and if we now say AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson, uh, although the jury is still out on the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, if we say uh, they are going to be subject to restriction of some sort, these are both the vaccines which did not need the rigorous minus 70 or minus 20 degrees centigrade storage, which uh, has been overcome very well, I must say, by Pfizer for transport and then thawing uh, of the vaccine before use. If we are to say that Of course, in these countries, uh, a a vaccine which can be stored at ordinary refrigerator temperature, uh, minus four degrees, or four degrees, I beg your pardon, uh, is a great help for transport and storage, rather than minus 70.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay. So the other specific area I wanted to talk about Um, with regard to COVID vaccination is the question of how far apart your two doses need to be if you're given a a two-dose vaccine, Oh whether it's a a month or three months or whatever. So as far as I understand it, but but feel free to set me straight, Mm -hmm. the evidence is reasonably clear that the first dose gives a decent level of protection and the second just tops it up to to premium, as it were. And the first dose lasts for a decent time. So the idea is then that by making people wait longer for their second dose... You can give the first dose more widely, and so you get a better level of overall protection for everyone in the same amount of time with the same resources. Am I right so far to start with? Yep. Okay. So then you've got the ethical argument, which was brought up when this plan was, was first proposed by, I think, uh, by GPs, family doctors, among others, saying, okay, hold on a minute. Firstly, we're not totally clear on the evidence, but even if that's true, even if we are sure that this is all going to be safe and and will work well if you delay the second jab, there's the question of patient consent, because we've got patients here who've had the first dose of the vaccine, who consented, right, on the understanding that they were going to get the second dose fairly soon after. And now we're saying to them, having had the first dose, oh, we're changing the treatment you agreed to without asking you, and now you have to wait longer. And And also, it's not only about consent, but it's also about individual protection because you were kind of post hoc reducing the protection the individual gets so that you can give more doses to more people because you're less well protected when you've had one dose than when you've had both
1: well uh, i'm in exactly that position toby i volunteered to be a vaccinator and i said in my population where i live in london three percent are known to be positive for on nasal swabs for virus uh, i i honestly feel that I should be vaccinated in order to be protected when I am seeing three out of 100 patients who could infect me. In the end, I found some uh, a vaccine centre that was uh, I was able to get the first vaccine. I was given the second date three weeks later, which was then cancelled, and I'm now on the 12-week wait. Now, the government's idea was you've got some and pretty good protection with the first dose, the booster, the second dose is giving you just that bit extra to get you above the 90%, let's say. That's a reasonable thing. Pfizer, of course, and I got the Pfizer vaccine, they said, well, our clinical trials are only done on a gap of three to four weeks. So we don't know. Then the immunologists say, but you've got immune memory, which I was talking about at the beginning. The body doesn't forget. And at 12 weeks, you certainly won't have forgotten your first dose immunologically. What we don't know is what the levels of the antibodies and so on are going to be. But there are studies going on for that. The other thing which is really quite interesting is for vaccines. There was a thing called Prime Boost that was very topical at one time. You give a first dose of a vaccine. And then you give a second dose against the same infection, but it's a different vaccine, could be a different one altogether. So you're mixing different vaccines and there's a trial starting or it has started where the Pfizer vaccine is given as the first dose. And then the second dose is the AstraZeneca one. And that's prime boost. And I don't know the full details of the time between them and so on. But what that would mean is, let's say we ran out of Pfizer vaccine or the Pfizer plant was burnt down or something hideous like that. There would be evidence. And you could argue that moving it to 12 weeks has ensured that more people get that background level of immunity, which is probably at least 70 percent. Yeah,
0: and, and that's the argument, right? That's, that's the idea. argument.
1: So I was a bit sceptical at the beginning, but when I thought about it, I thought, this has been thought of very hard by our vaccine committee, the JCVI, and they've advised the government that it's safe and it's unlikely to give any very major downside. Uh, and that was the decision.
0: Yeah. And you'd say that that supersedes the individual consent issue.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Difficult question, difficult question. But if the policy is to protect as many people as possible, then it's it's a very good and adequate decision. And the people who understand the immunology of the vaccine uh, can give not evidence because it isn't there yet, but they can give a very good explanation to say, yes, this this is safe and yes, it will work.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, we, we, we could be persuaded that it will work scientifically, but then we still face the underlying political question of, of whether we're prioritizing community protection, herd immunity or whatever, or personal protection. So it's the ethics rather than the science. And that's what I think this issue of delaying the second dose makes us confront.
1: Well, it's a bit of both, really. Um, personal protection, of course, is, is very important. But If you are personally protected, you're protecting people around you. And and so that the two are very closely uh, interrelated. There's been talk recently of vaccination passports, for example. You know, will you need a passport to show before you get on an airplane? Uh, will you need a test, a PCR test, uh, before you get on an aeroplane? So, before
0: you go into a, a nightclub or something or a bar or things? It theater. could
1: well be. It could well be. But, I mean, that, that is extreme. But, you know, we are in an extreme situation at the moment. And it's in, in many ways for us in, in the developed world with hospitals and rapid response. Imagine what it's like if you're in Africa in the bush and your village gets COVID. Very tough. Very tough.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, that brings us on to something else, which has come up a couple of times we really ought to discuss about how vaccines are being spread to developing countries and places that haven't got the facility to to buy, you know, multiple times the number of doses they're going to need for their population Mm. like some Western Mm. countries have. Yeah. So, there's the question, obviously, of cost, who sets the price and who pays for it. And there's also maybe the, the so-called vaccine diplomacy angle, where availability of vaccines becomes a foreign policy instrument. What are your thoughts on all this?
1: Well, this is moving very rapidly, and in some ways it's moving well. The, the first thing to say is that there is a group called COVAX, C-O-V-A-X, which is made up from the World Health Organization and Gates are involved, of course. A group called CEPI, which is a Norwegian philanthropic organization for uh, Coalition for Emergency Preparedness. Uh, the World Bank, uh, Welcome Trust are involved there and they are saying, what can we do to spread uh, vaccine? Finance is one thing. World Bank can give loans, can give money. A group called Gavi is part of this, the Global Alliance for Vaccines. Uh, They can distribute vaccines uh, free. They will have obtained money from somewhere. So this this idea that uh, developing countries and less advantaged countries must be protected as well is, is really being looked at very hard. Governments are becoming aware that this has to be looked at globally. And there are these uh, organizations that I've mentioned, uh, CEPI, uh, WHO, and so on. Uh, now an individual country is saying, we will help. Now, back to your word, complexity. You then have to deliver this vaccine safely so it doesn't get degraded, sterile so it doesn't cause infection at the site of injection. So, again, this complexity has to be thought about at all levels. It's not just saying we'll give you a million doses of uh, a vaccine. It's somebody having to say, right, where are they going? And I understand that one of the ideas for this COVAX group is that in countries of need, uh, they will aim for healthcare workers. And they will aim for roundabout in the first instance, at least about 20 percent of the population, which is low, which is very low. But nevertheless, it's, it's a good start. And the idea is by the end of this year, 2021, uh, we might have reached a, a, a sort of community herd immunity using vaccination. And certainly in the developed world, that is perfectly feasible in my view.
0: Yeah. And in terms of getting it out to those parts of the world, is there also like a geopolitical angle? Is there a fear of uh, the EU better do this quickly because otherwise China and Russia will get there first?
1: Oh, yes. China and Russia have both produced vaccines. And the the claims for their effectiveness uh, have been, well, they haven't been scrutinized in the West completely, but they seem to be percentage protection. Uh, lower than the, the the major vaccines that we are using, Pfizer and Moderna and so on. But nevertheless, they do give protection. But they will be cheap and they can be used, of course, as political tools. Now, we know, for example, that China is very active in Africa, uh, making dams, uh, uh, installing uh, mobile telephone systems, will give you a vaccine. In exchange for your cobalt or your lithium or whatever and you you can see that sort of thing maybe uh, happening. Uh, I'm an optimist and I I hope we can get around those sorts of of things but at the back of my mind uh, and the back of everybody's mind I think there is that that sort of that sort of worry. The other thing of course is competition between big pharma. There was a huge rush to get the first of the uh, vaccines out and Pfizer, of course, were the first one and they were giving a a 94% efficiency. And then uh, Moderna, the price of shares of those companies rocketed and some people were selling their shares at times four, times five profit. Uh, Well, that isn't political, I guess, that is financial, but that's a side of... Of COVID, which isn't terribly pleasant. But it may have been very useful in that the acceleration of development and testing of the vaccine was really, really pushed very hard. Very hard.
0: Right. Well, there's certainly no shortage of finance for the companies that were doing the work, right? The money they could draw on.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, All right. Professor George Griffin, this has really been a virtuosic tour of many different aspects of the science and policy of vaccination. It's really very much appreciated. Uh, So thank you and good luck with your voluntary work as a vaccinator.
1: (laughs) Toby, thank you very much. It's a pleasure.
0: The Science for Policy podcast is produced by CEPAEA. We're a consortium of Europe's academies and learning societies, and we're part of the European Commission's scientific advice mechanism. We provide evidence and expertise to inform the work of the Group of Chief Scientific Advisors. CEPAEA is funded by the EU's Horizon 2020 programme for research and innovation, and you can find lots more information about us and our work at sopea.info. Finally, the rather lovely cello music that's playing right now is performed by Elizaveta Sushchenko. So I shall shut up and let you enjoy the last few bars. Bye for now.